Welcome to Making a Difference, a Junction Journalism production. I'm Jack Rinjanan. This episode of Making a Difference has been produced by journalism students at the Swinburne University of Technology on Woiwurrung Country and Curtin University on Wajuk Noongar Country. The federal election is being held on May 21st, and the Labour, Liberal, National and Greens parties, among others, have been aggressively campaigning right across the country. In this episode, we'll speak with candidates and senators from the major parties. We'll also hear stories on how frustrated and young voters could shape the election outcome. First up in the program, Alessandro Rossini and I spoke with Greens candidate Pierce Mitchum. He's competing with the incumbent federal treasurer, Josh Frydenberg, who has held the seat of Kuyong for the Liberal Party since 2010. We spoke with him about the Greens' policy on emission reduction and climate change, but started by asking about the issues facing university students across Australia. My impression has been, and look, tell me if I'm wrong, but my impression has been that a lot of students are really concerned about the levels of debt that they are emerging with after they finish university, having to repay those debts and at the same time grapple with the housing affordability issues and rental uh, affordability issues that that we're facing at the moment. I don't think the financial pressures on students have probably ever been greater than they are right now. Um, It is a real, it's it's a pressing concern and quite rightly so. Um, I think student debt across the country sits at just shy of $60 billion. And the average time that it takes a student to pay off their study debt has increased over recent years from eight to to nine years. Um, The point is that debt is increasing, the burden is increasing, and it's coming at students from multiple angles. It's not just study, but it's rent, it's housing affordability, it's being able to get into the housing market, it's general cost of living stuff as well. Um, Wages aren't rising, the gender, gender pay gap's not closing. Um, there's not adequate support for young mums to return to the workforce in terms of childcare, all this sort of stuff. These are, um, I suppose, pressures on at multiple levels that kind of collide at one point in your <laughs> at various points in your lifetime. And I, I don't think it is sustainable. Um, and when you look at the long-term trends, it's playing a major part in the fact that we are currently looking at a generation of Australians who, for the first time in at least 100 years, will be financially worse off than their parents. Um, this is not due to sort of external factors beyond our control. It's government policy decisions that make it harder for students to pay their way through. Um, in response to that, the Greens are talking about a number of things to sort of meet these concerns. Um, but one of our major policy platforms at the moment is that all union taste should be free and that we should wipe student debt. And we can afford it. It's about how we choose to spend our money, where we choose to pass tax cuts or not pass certain tax cuts. We can meet these expenses and we can meet them on at a sustainable, um, at certainly a very sustainable level. It's just a question of the order of priorities, I think. What are your plans to get urgent action on climate change through if you don't hold the balance of power and Labor has an outright majority? Sure. Well, so just, just to clarify, our policy is that we want a 75% reduction mm in emissions on 2005 levels by 2030, mm. and we're, we're advocating to, re- to reach net zero by 2035. Mm-hmm. That's based on the best available scientific advice that we have um, coming through from the Climate Council, um, who have really advocated for those targets, and that's what we should be pursuing. It's what we're required to pursue under the Paris Agreement in working with the best available science and the highest level of ambition to limit heating to 1.5 degrees or less. Mm -hmm. Um, 
Look, you've got to be realistic that if you don't land, if, if the Greens or, or any party seeking to land in the balance of power doesn't, then they certainly don't have the leverage or the ability to pass policy through that they otherwise would. Mm. I mean, that's our key power message, right, is put us in the balance of power where we can make those changes. Um, so we're quite, I think it, it's pretty obvious we're quite up front that if you're not in the balance of power, you're not going to be able to get the changes you want or everything you want through. That's not to say that the Greens won't continue lobbying and pushing really hard for these targets to be met. Um, they're not ideological targets. They're what the science says is necessary to do our bit to keep global heating from catastrophic levels. That was Greens candidate for Kuyong, Pierce Mitchum, on emission reduction, climate change and the issues that students face of debt and increasing living costs. In a general population that is dominated by older voters, Swinburne's high local youth population has a chance to make its voice heard. Claudia Harvey reports from Woiwurrung Country in Melbourne. Kuyong's high youth population could spell trouble for the local MP, Federal Treasurer Josh Frydenberg, at the federal election next month. Swinburne political behaviourist Dr Rob Hoffman said close to a third of Kuyong's voters are under 25, and that could be a positive for the local independent candidate, Dr Monique Ryan. Dr Hoffman said that while people under 25 make up only 10% of Australia's voters, their high concentration in Kuyong and other inner-city electorates could put pressure on the current sitting members. Where Swinburne's located, or Swinburne's Hawthorne campus is, and which is held by the Liberals but under threat from a climate-focused independent, 30% of the voters are under 25. So where you have that concentration of young voters, there is a capacity to make real meaningful change in terms of the makeup of the parliament. Swinburne student Sophie said she absolutely believed her vote could have a meaningful impact. I know that it can be very hard to look at, you know, how little an individual action can do, but I do believe that, you know, if all the people who thought it didn't make a difference decided to vote then it would make a difference so I've got to participate even though it might be somewhat hard to distinguish exactly how much it means. The popularity of candidates like Ryan may be reflective of young voters generally being more invested in issues that might not be relevant to older voters who won't be around so long such as climate change according to Dr Hoffman. Traditionally well I want to say traditionally over the, over the past few decades we've seen a rise in Um, what are called post-material values among younger voters. The idea that um, voters are no longer interested purely in their immediate economic security and have the luxury of looking um, to concerns like human rights, like climate, like broader public welfare. Younger voters' particular interest in these post-material values is also reflected in an overall higher approval of the Greens Party and the Labor Party. It's a long-term trend that younger voters are particularly much more uh, receptive to the Greens Party. Um, it's something like 30% of voters under 25 will vote Green against an average of about 10%, and among over 65, so that's about 2%. You see higher Labor support, you see lower satisfaction with the government. That's a fairly consistent trend, so I wouldn't expect that to change uh, in any great A UCOMS poll found Ryan held a 59 to 41 per cent two-party preferred lead over Frydenberg. Swinburne student Jenna said she would be voting for the Labor Party. I grew up in a very Labor household, so I think a lot of my 
choices are going to be leading towards the issues they're raising. Um, I think the Labor Party has a better outlook on the discrimination bill. I think the Liberal Party isn't appreciating how important it is and they're kind of not letting it be a main factor of the election. I think it should be. Another student, Angus, said he had not been paying attention to political parties and their policies recently. I don't really pay much attention to it all because I don't sort of take that much interest in it. So I don't really know much about like what everyone stands for and all that. So no, not really leaning in any particular direction. When another Swinburne student, Nick, was asked if he thought his vote could make a difference, he said he believed his vote would count but was apathetic towards the upcoming election. I'm not too fussed about like the outcome, like whether it's this or that. Yeah, um, yeah but I, I, I'm sure that there's a, there would be some sort of change if I was to enrol. Youth engagement in the election has improved compared to previous elections, but voting enrolment is lower among this demographic compared to the overall Australian population, Dr Hoffman said. In terms of why younger people are less likely to be enrolled to vote, part of that is disengagement with not politics generally, but with traditional establishment political processes. Less satisfaction in major parties, less satisfaction in government, and a disjuncture between what younger Australians see as important as opposed to what governments treat as important. This has been Claudia Harvey from Swinburne University reporting for The Junction. In the face of increasing tension in the Pacific region, the federal government over the last year has increasingly focused on defence initiatives and spending announcements. Alessandro Rossini spoke with Liberal Senator James Patterson about how the coalition intend to differentiate their policies from those announced by Labor, but started by asking about political donations and whether Australia's democracy is for sale. It's really not for sale uh, at all, and uh, the reason why you can have confidence about that is that any meaningfully large donation has to be publicly disclosed, Mm -hmm. and political parties are therefore accountable for the decisions they make uh, and the donations that they receive. Um, So it's pretty easy, and the media devotes quite a lot of time and energy to this, to look at who donates to political parties and to identify whether they are beneficiaries of favours by governments. And I think there's very few circumstances we can point out that anything untoward has happened. It's important for transparency that happened, but that's not to say that there haven't been risks in the past. Um, we have uh, only a couple of years ago that our government banned foreign political donations. And I think that was important because uh, what we discovered over the last five years is that that was a source of vulnerability for our country. We had some um, very significant non-Australian citizen uh, donors, particularly from China, who donated literally millions of dollars to mm. Australian political parties and compromised at least one Australian politician in that process who resigned as a result, Senator Sam Dastyari from the Labor Party in New South Wales. So I think it is important that... Only Australians are able to donate to influence Australian elections. What threat does China pose to Australia? Um, And with the election now being announced, what threat does it pose to our election and our electoral integrity? Mm. Our relationship with China has changed a lot over the last 10 years. It's gone from being what was quite a transactional economic relationship, which we both benefited from. Mm. We supplied them with things they needed to grow their country, and in turn they paid very good prices to us for it, and we both prospered from it. And I think most Australians would have been content for that relationship to continue in that transactional way, um, which was really typified by the free trade agreement 
agreement signed by the Abbott government in 2014. Mm. But China's adopted a very different approach in the last couple of years in particular, a very aggressive approach yeah. both domestically at home and internationally abroad, whether you look at their militarisation of the South China Sea, whether you look at um, their abrogation of democracy and freedom in Hong Kong, where mm-hmm. you look at their repression at home against the Uyghurs in Xinjiang in particular, or now the trade sanctions campaign against Australia. Um, it's on the public record that mm. China is and has been for some time the principal source of foreign interference threat to Australia. Yeah. They have sought to intervene in our elections. They have sought to uh, compromise our national security and our sovereignty. And it is a very real risk, um, not just at this election, but generally to our country going forward. And what it requires of us is eternal vigilance uh, and strength in defending our national interest. And I'm very proud to be part of a Morrison government that's done an enormous amount in the mm. last five years to address this threat, whether that's banning Huawei from our 5G network, passing foreign interference legislation, mm. establishing the Foreign Influence Transparency Scheme, banning foreign political donations. We've done a whole lot of things to um, really safeguard our democracy and our sovereignty against those threats and to make ourselves a harder target for foreign interference. And a lot of other countries are now copying our lead. The United Kingdom and the United States, who I recently visited on an Intelligence Committee delegation, are basically looking to do what Australia has done mm. uh, in a very similar way. So um, that threat hasn't gone away. It is still present, um, but we've come a long way. And look, Labor has committed to 2% defence spending, uh, which matches the government's. Um, They've also uh, supported AUKUS, the Quad Alliance. Um, How is the coalition going to try and differentiate themselves on security um, from the other major party? Well, there's two ways we'll do that. One is by looking at history and their record. Um, mm-hmm. So, yes, Labor's promising to match our spending now, but what did they do when they last were in government, when they last had the opportunity? Mm. Well, they cut defence spending mm. to 1.56% of GDP, which was the lowest level since 1938. Mm. In six years in office, they didn't order a single naval platform, despite Kevin Rudd's defence white paper in 2009 saying Australia urgently needed 12 conventionally powered uh, submarines. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that we are still making up for the, the those decisions that they made there. They ripped millions of dollars out of the Australian Federal Police. They subjected our intelligence agencies to an additional efficiency dividend that effectively cut their spending by 4% every Mm. year. And Anthony Byrne, who was then the Labor chair of the Intelligence and Security Committee, had to stand up in the parliament and denounce his own government for the risks that it was posing to national Mm. security. So their record is there for everyone to see. In terms of the future, well, of course, before an election, when they know that national security is a strength of ours, they are trying to minimise the differences with us and adopt a small target strategy. But if they win the election, if they're in government, they won't have our homework to copy anymore. They'll have to make those decisions for themselves. And does anyone seriously think if Bill Shorten had been elected three years ago, not Scott Morrison, that we would even have AUKUS today, that Mm. the quad would have been upgraded in the way that it has to the leader level? I I seriously think there's no evidence Mm. they would have sought out those opportunities. And um, that's because they're just not as interested in national security. They don't care about it as much. And they're not, uh, they don't really understand the dangerous times we're living Mm. in and they're not living up to those dangers. Alessandro also spoke with Labor member Peter Khalil about bipartisanship in Australian politics, but started by asking about Labor's history in government of defence spending and policy. Yeah, so I'm on the, the Intelligence Committee with James. Mm. He's, the, he's the chair and we went on a trip together. He's a, he's a really good guy. Don't agree with him, obviously, on a lot of um, issues ideologically and um, around policy direction, but there's some things we do agree with. Mm. But I don't agree with him on his... Uh, I've heard him run these lines about defence spending, so let's knock that on the head first. This argument that we cut defence spending and oh, blah, blah. You know what? What they're doing is very clever. They're plucking out one year mm-hmm. where there was a shift of the defence spending during the Rudd-Gillard years. Well, I'll tell you this. If you took the six years of Rudd-Gillard government and compared it to the Howard government, which was 11 years, the difference is 0.02% on mm-hmm. defence spending. It was one point seven, one point 
seven eight to one point eight. That was the difference, point zero two percent. Okay, so again, these guys have been in in power for nine years, and they keep reaching back into the bag. Oh, but look what Labor did in twenty twelve or twenty ten. All right, now come on, guys, you've been in power for nine years, right? Take responsibility. All right, and so when they try and turn it on us. It's a bit pathetic because they've been in power for nine years. And in those nine years, what have they done on defense capability, Alessandro? They've talked a big game, okay? We have defense capability gaps all over the place, right? And now Dutton is scrambling 11th hour to buy some missiles to cover some of these gaps, to do some defense capability. And they say, and James says, and others will say, oh, but, you know, it takes years. You know, you should know it takes years to do these projects. You've had nine years. Like, don't tell me you didn't understand that the rise of authoritarianism and autocratic states, that was on everyone's radar five, six years ago. We saw the changes going on. You can't just say you were surprised by what just happened in the last year in Ukraine. And it's too important. This is where the difference is, right? Yes, in our party, people see this very, very clearly, the importance of defence. The leader has said, Anthony Albanese has said very clearly, um, China has changed. We know that. We're dealing with a threat now. Penny Wong has said that. Richard Miles has said that. I'm saying it. We need to actually deal with that. Sure, they're an important economic partner, and they're still important for our economic relationship. We want to maintain that, okay? But we also need to make sure that our defense capability and our national security are taken care of, and we're going to, we've got policies in place to do that when it comes to defense capability. Uh, and doing it in the national interest, not for a political purpose, um, you know, to win some votes. So I wanted to talk specifically about bipartisanship that you've experienced. Um, big issues, same-sex marriage. Mm-hmm. Um, we obviously had um, now recently with China, it's been quite a big bipartisan issue. Um, is bipartisanship in the parliament quite prominent? I mean, obviously, we've got question time, which is the yeah. opportunity to, <laughs> to sledge one another. But yeah. outside of that, is bipartisanship something that happens quite regularly um, in the in the parliament? I mean, the short answer is yes. I mean, what people see on TV is question time mm. and the thea- theatrics of question time, the atmospherics, mm. the, you called it sledging, but mm. this sort of shouting and carry on like pork chops. Mm. You know, there's a fair bit of that mm. going on because it, it's, it's on TV. That's an hour and a half a day mm. out of a 12-hour day or sometimes longer mm. where the rest of the time the parliament is actually debating legislation in a, mm-hmm. in a pretty responsible and professional way. Mm. There may be disagreements, but there's a debate on the substantive points of the of the legislation that's before us. There's committee work where mm. you work with your um, fellow parliamentarians uh, on various policy areas. So I'm on the I'm the deputy chair of the treaties committee. We look at all the international treaties mm. that Australia uh, is a signatory to, and we do a review for the parliament of those. Um, I'm also on the foreign affairs, defence, and trade uh, parliamentary committee, and also on the intelligence and security committee. And there's a, a really high degree of uh, co- cooperation and working constructively mm. together um, in in the sense of, you know, pursuing Australia's national interest. Mm. Now, there are disagreements. Mm. There are political disagreements. There are ideological disagreements. Mm. But we work through those. Sometimes there's a minority report or a dissenting report and so on. But you don't have the same atmospherics of question time. Mm. Therefore, the media is not interested in filming some boring people sitting around a table mm. agreeing with each other or discussing, you know, mm. point by point a bit of legislation. It's just not sexy enough to, to go on the news. Yep. But when, you know, Morrison and our leader Albo are sort of shouting at each other across the thing or whatever, Mm. then it makes the news, right? Mm. So to answer your question, there is bipartisanship. Mm. Now, but let me make this point about bipartisanship. 
you don't just do it for the sake of it. Yeah. Right? You, you do it. There's bipartisanship when there is an agreement that we, we have a common objective mm. for, the, for Australia's national interests and we can actually work together to get there. Mm. Our politics is predicated on the idea that there is a contest of ideas, mm. that we have different perspectives and views about the direction of the country, mm. of policies and laws that we want to put in place to, to take us in that direction. And the whole idea of the democracy is that we can mm. do this without shooting each other. Yeah. And we can do it through debate. Yeah. And through a majority voting mm. system. So we can pass laws and, and power is retained and utilized mm. by the party that is chosen through the sovereign will of the people. Yeah. Okay. Not through force. Yeah. And that is the key of it. And so it's actually good to have a bit of toing and froing because it's a contest of ideas. ideas. You know? Yeah. Um, where we do agree on something, fine. We can mm. be bipartisan. Where we don't, we have to make the argument to the people about our way being better or why our, what we're suggesting is a better way forward. That was Alessandro Rossini speaking with Labor member Peter Khalil and Liberal Senator James Patterson as part of Politics with a Peep Later, and you can find those full interviews on iTunes and Spotify. Major parties make up much of the media airtime, but dissatisfaction with these parties may convince Australians to vote for independence. Charlie Mills reports from Wajuk Noongar country. With the election nearly upon us, Australians are going to be making the choice of who to vote for in only a number of weeks. Many will put the Coalition or Labor as their first preference, and some will opt for a third party, such as the Greens or the United Australia Party, but some are suggesting that Australians may look towards independent candidates. Senior lecturer in politics at the University of Sydney, Stuart Jackson, says dissatisfaction with both the major parties could convince Australians to vote for alternative candidates. What we have seen over the last, really over the last 35 years, and as a generalised trend, is a decline in the combined major party vote. Mr Jackson says this isn't really a defined trend on either side of the aisle, but rather is spread out across all sides of the political spectrum whether they be the Freedom Convoy going to Canberra or climate protesters. There's a, a, a change, I think, in the way that people perceive their democracy and their role within that democracy. He says, although we may be seeing a slight trend towards the independent at this election, Australia's political history is rooted in the independent. The independent has a, uh, a very long history in Australian politics. Um, and certainly was the core of it. In this year's federal election, 46 independent candidates are seeking election to the House of Representatives across 38 divisions, and six are campaigning for the Senate. One such candidate is Kate Cheney, campaigning for the traditionally blue-ribbon seat of Curtin in Western Australia. Miss Cheney says she decided to run as an independent because of the dissatisfaction she and others felt with the two-party system. I became increasingly frustrated with the quality of the long-term decisions we're seeing in politics and it does seem like our two-party system is really focused on winning rather than actually there being any purpose to that winning. So it's, it seems to be power without purpose. Curtin is a seat encompassing much of the wealthier western suburbs in Perth and for almost all its history has been held by a Liberal. The seat was previously held by a former Liberal Foreign Affairs Minister, Julie Bishop, and is currently held by the incumbent Liberal MP, Celia Hammond. But Ms Cheney says she believes the people of Curtin are ready for a change. I think there is a real appetite for change in Curtin. Um, and that's, I mean, this is my community... 
Um, you know, and I think I am representative of a lot of the people that I know in Curtin who um, just feel very disillusioned with the, with the two-party system. With a broad background of work across multiple sectors, family history in the Liberal Party and previous membership in the Labor Party, Miss Cheney is campaigning as a true independent. When I was approached by Curtin Independent, a community group to run, I thought this is, this is an opportunity to, to really um, you know, have an impact on uh, shifting the focus to longer term decisions in this country. Recent years have seen some significant independents win elections in seats traditionally held by party members, including Andrew Wilkie, Helen Haynes and Zali Stegall. Currently, there are only three members in the lower house who are independents, with one more sitting in the Senate. But despite their small population, independents can wield a great amount of power. Miss Cheney says the role of an independent as a balance of power in the parliament is key to our democracy. That role as holding the major parties to account I think is really significant. Um, there are a lot of problems with the two-party system and uh, some issues of transparency and accountability that have gradually got worse over time. Zali Stegall won her seat over the incumbent former Prime Minister Tony Abbott in 2019 and she stressed the importance of her status as an independent in a 2021 speech. It is independence um, and the crossbench that hold government to account and ensure better policy and more scrutiny on what goes on. Um, I would very much welcome a minority government post next election because I think the winners out of that will be Australians. Stuart Jackson says to understand the power of an independent, you only need to cast your mind back to the outcome of the 2010 federal election. We, of course, had the hung parliament, where you had both the major parties competing for six crossbench votes. We actually needed four to govern, uh, and the only party that could put together that uh, majority um, was the Labor Party, and so we had Julia Gillard uh, elected as Prime Minister. With the coalition government only holding power with a margin of one seat, some are projecting a hung parliament as a very real future, potentially giving independence considerable power. Miss Cheney says that if the election does end in a hung parliament, she would use the opportunity to support the potential government that would best protect the interests of her electorate. I would look at what's being put on the table by, by both major parties um, on those issues. So it does mean that the, the views of Curtin become really significant at a national level. I would provide my support to whichever party to form a minority government that is providing the, the best outcomes on, on those issues. Ms Cheney says she is dedicated to providing balance and moderation to the parliament and using her policies to aid the future of Australia. There's a real opportunity to change the conversation through independence, ensure that, that, um, that issues are being raised and also to give strength to the more moderate voices within both the parties by providing them with some backing too. Charlie Mills, Junction Journalism. And that story by Charlie Mills finishes our program. For more of the best stories in student journalism around Australia, go to our website, junctionjournalism.com. And don't forget, there's a new episode of Making a Difference every month. You can subscribe on your favourite podcast app. I'm Jack Ranjanan. Thanks for listening.